book lover. I am so glad you are here listening to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. The show is a passion project for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy making it. I only interview authors whose books I have read and enjoyed, so if I am chatting with an author on the main show, it means that I really liked their book and feel comfortable recommending it to you. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I work hard to find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations and to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Are you looking for an engaging book community with unique bonus content? If so, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon community, which is filled with a wonderful group of readers. I offer three levels, page turners, lit lovers, and royal readers, and each level provides all sorts of cool bonus book content that you will not find elsewhere. If you are interested or want more information, the link to join is in my show notes. Today, I'm chatting with S.J. Bennett about Murder Most Royal. Sophia was born in Yorkshire and traveled the world as an army child. Her father met the queen many times in the course of his duties. She studied languages at UCL and Cambridge University and did a variety of jobs before turning to her childhood ambition to write fiction. An award-winning author of over a dozen books, she has worked as a fellow of the Royal Literary Fund and a teacher of creative writing at City Lit and City University. She is based in London and still travels whenever she can. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Welcome, Sophia. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you, and thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad you're here because I thoroughly enjoy this series, and I just recently finished up Murder Most Royal and had a blast reading it. Oh, I'm so delighted to know that. I can't really think of anywhere further from Sandringham and Norfolk in England than Texas. It's just lovely to think of people enjoying it there. Exactly. It is a little bit different. So it's kind of fun. Takes me someplace else entirely. I'm sure the Queen would have been very jealous to think of you there um, because, uh, yeah, being such a horse fan, I'm sure she would have absolutely loved Texas. Absolutely. Well, since this is a series and we haven't chatted before, I thought we might back up a little bit and you could tell me generally about the series first and then we could start talking about Murder Most Royal after that. The series is called Her Majesty the Queen Investigates. And I guess now it should be called Her Late Majesty the Queen Investigates, which is very sad for me. Um, It's a crime series that features Queen Elizabeth II as a secret detective. And so far there is one trilogy, although I plan to write many more. And the third book is just being published in the US and Canada, which is really exciting for me. And the first three books are set in three of the Queen's residences in the UK. So the first one called The Windsor Knot is set in Windsor Castle, and it's about a murder that takes place there. Looks like it might have been uh, an accident gone wrong, but the Queen suspects foul play. 
Uh, and the second one is set in Buckingham Palace, which is in the middle of a, a renovation that cost nearly is costing nearly um, eight hundred million pounds. And the third one is set at Christmas in 2016 at Sandringham, and the Queen is there for Christmas with her family. Um, and I should say what I do is I try and write the Queen as realistically and authentically as I can. And then just imagine what happens in the little bits of time that we don't hear about when she's kind of got some time off. Um, and I imagine her in those moments solving murders with the help of her private assistant. And yeah, have great fun with it. And so she has an assistant, Rosie, who helps her solve the crime since she can't be running all over the countryside and interacting with everybody. And I loved that you did that. So tell me first how you decided to have the Queen solving mysteries and how you came up with Rosie. The idea for The Queen Solving Mysteries came from me thinking about a very early episode of The Crown. I haven't seen the later series, but I loved the first one and two with Claire Foy. And there was a moment in that where she just, she did something I didn't think that the real Queen would have done. And it was just a small moment. But I just felt my father had met the Queen many times by that stage because he was in the army and then he was in our National Health Service. And he met her on, on various occasions. And he he said, she was a real expert on the things that she loved, like military history being one of them. And, and I just felt that I'd, I sort of, I knew her as a very intelligent, curious, experienced person. And I just got to thinking that if she wanted to, she was the biggest expert on her palaces, on what was going on with them, of anyone around. And she would see things that other people weren't see because they were too busy being distracted by her. So I thought she'd make a brilliant detective and she could have access to any expert she wanted. But I quickly realized, first of all, that uh, she wouldn't be able to run around outside the palaces solving crimes, of course, because she was a busy woman. And also that it's not that interesting just reading about rich people all the time. I needed somebody more normal and human to write about. And so I, I developed this um, sidekick called Rosie Ashodi, who is a captain, was a captain in the British Army. And she has the job that I'm, I did really interview for myself in the 1990s working for the Queen. But Rosie is much better at it than I would have been. She's of Nigerian heritage. She is really good at self-defense, which comes in very handy sometimes. She's great at maths. She's really good at problem solving. And to start off with, she doesn't know what the Queen's going to ask her to do. But when she realizes what she's, what's required of her, then she becomes really good at it. You have a fabulous website, and I really enjoyed digging around on it this morning preparing for this interview. And you talked about interviewing for Rosie's job, and you talked about your father meeting the Queen and some of these other things. And it was just so interesting to see some of that background. So I really encourage readers to do that. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm in the process of adding to my website at the moment, so I'm really glad people are going there and uh, enjoying what they find. There, there's a recipe for scones there as well, I should say. So. Um, Yes, if you, if you want to um, find out some of the, the Queen's favorite food and how to make it, then um, it's a good place to go. And photos. You have some beautiful photos of the various locales. Yes, I'm adding some more. Um, I, I take them whenever I can. I was actually at Buckingham Palace with a couple of readers a couple of days ago because I ran a competition on my newsletter and, and they were the winners. Sadly, you can't take pictures inside as you go around, but you can in the gardens. So yeah, I'm in the process of adding a few more. One of the other questions you had that fascinated me was whether you had to have permission to write about the Queen. And I would have never thought about that. And you said you didn't need permission. Do you get that question a lot? I do get that question a lot. And I really understand it because I absolutely had that question myself. It was the first question I asked myself. I really thought about it and I thought, should I ask? But then I realized that, 
well, the whole reason I'd had this idea was that uh, I was thinking about the crown. And Peter Morgan, the, the writer of that, has been writing about the queen for years and years. And the crown is quite fictional in a lot of places, more than my books are in some ways. And also Alan Bennett, uh, who's no relation of mine, but is a brilliant writer. He's written about her and Sue Townsend has. And it's actually, there's quite an industry of people writing fiction around the Queen. And I realised I'm just writing in a tradition. And I think it's really interesting because the great thing about the Queen is I think we all feel that we knew her really well as a person. And in many ways we did, but she never gave interviews and we can't be absolutely sure what she thought. I think she, she gave the impression of her feelings through imagery. So, for example, when I think it was um, Justin Trudeau came to visit her, there was a big blue and yellow flower arrangement on a table in Windsor Castle. And it was at the time of the Ukraine war. And, and, and to me, that was just a message saying that it was support for Ukraine, but she didn't actually say it. So I think she did speak in, in imagery, but she didn't give interviews. And so because she didn't give interviews, she left lots of spaces for people like me to imagine what she got up to behind the scenes. So I just thought that was so interesting because I knew different people had written about the Queen and I would never have thought about needing to ask permission, but I thought you must get that question a lot because it was listed high in your FAQs. So a couple of different things about writing about the Queen. One, it must have been difficult writing about the Queen with her passing last year. That's when your book came out in the UK. Is that correct? Yes. Well, I had just handed the final version of the, the proof pages into my editor with my final, final edits on uh, that morning. And I was traveling home thinking that that book is now out of my hands. And as I was traveling home, the news was changing. And by the end of that afternoon, they had very sadly announced that the Queen had died at Balmoral. And I found myself in this weird position, watching this really, really sad news, not entirely unexpected, but nevertheless really sad, and having to change the proofs again to put lots of things in the past tense in my acknowledgements and that kind of thing. It, it was a very strange feeling. And also realizing that I had planned for my fourth book to be about the Queen in Balmoral in 2017. And I will write that book, but I just couldn't write it next. It was too close to what had really happened. So I ended up going back in time. So in fact, the book that I've been writing since the Queen died is set in 1957, a long time in the past. It was just too painful. Well, one of my later questions was going to be where your next book was set. So that's interesting. And I can understand that with her dying at Balmoral. Yeah. Although I'm, I'm glad for her that that is where she died, because I think the Scots managed that so beautifully. And she, she had a lying in state in Scotland, in Edinburgh, before she came down to London. And, and, and that journey from Scotland to London enabled so many people to stand at the roadside and pay their respects and everything. Yeah, it was, it was very moving. I think that's the way she would have wanted it to happen. But yeah, it was, it was really shocking for us. Um, and there are so many stories about people who queued to see her, both in, in Scotland and in London. And lots of lifelong friendships were made in that queue. It's extraordinary. It was extraordinary to read some of those stories and how many people did queue up to see her body go by or to, to visit her lying in state once she got to London. Yeah, I mean, I think it shows how much she touched people. And, and that's really why 
I wanted to write about her. People assume that I am a natural royalist, and that's why I wanted to write about the Queen. But it's actually not that. I'm really interested in her as an individual, as somebody who, despite being really famous from the age of about three, really, managed to be surprisingly humble and normal and witty and always making fun of her own situation. And I think that's that's the extraordinary thing, that she kept that humility throughout her long life and in the process gained so much experience. If anybody else had been in that job, I don't think I'd be interested at all. Most of Europe's royal families do not interest me very much. But she as a particular individual does. And I think a lot of the qualities that she had of, yes, of intelligence, of curiosity, of being underestimated, they lend themselves to the kind of crime fiction that I love, which is golden age crime fiction. It is Agatha Christie and it's Dorothy Sayers and Rex Stout and, and those kind of detectives. So, yeah, I'm playing on that rather than playing on, on just the fact that she's, um, she's a rich person. That's fascinating to me that you say that because I am the same way. Like it appeals to me because I think she is a very interesting and intelligent person. And as you said, was famous from such a young age, was brought up in a completely different environment and has handled herself in so many amazing and I think profound ways at times. So that's why I was interested in reading your books. And I love mysteries and I love the UK. So I am not a royalist at all. You know, we're in the US. That's what I really liked so much actually about Murder Most Royal was the time period, Brexit and everything that was happening, what was happening here, what was happening there. So I think it is really interesting. And I'm glad you made that point because I don't think these stories are just for people who are diehard royal fans or even at all have to be diehard royal fans. You know what I mean? I'm not. And it sounds like you're not. I'm not. And I'm so glad you agree, Cindy. Yes. And, and they're really interesting political times. I set the first book in 2016, which was her 90th birthday, really out of laziness, because I thought, well, it's, it's far enough in the past that it's not kind of right now, but I don't have to do that much historical research, although I ended up <laughs> doing a lot. But of course, and I was thinking, what happened in 2016? I can't think of much. And then I thought, oh, my goodness, because we had Brexit and you had a very interesting election. And, and there was a lot going on in 2016, actually. And I love politics. So um, yes, it all makes its way into my plot. And I don't say exactly what the Queen thought, because of course, we don't know. But, um, but I, yes, I do like playing around with what was going on. Oh, I think we probably have a very good idea what she thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't we start talking about Murder Most Royal now? Will you give me a quick synopsis of it? The Queen is heading off to Sandringham for Christmas but she has a terrible cold and she's really not feeling her normal self, as is Philip. And just as she gets to Sandringham, a hand is found on the nearby beach at Snettersham, a human hand uh, detached from the body. And Rosie, her assistant, tells her that the police are in the process of trying to find out who the hand belongs to. But the Queen instantly recognises it because it's wearing a ring. It's a male hand, but it's wearing a signet ring. And and she recognises that ring. And in fact, she recognises the hand as belonging to somebody that she used to know. And she wants the police to investigate this one thoroughly this time. She wants to get on and have Christmas with Prince Charles and Camilla and Princess Anne and the rest of the family. But she just doesn't think the police are doing a good enough job. And she keeps on finding things out because she's really well connected in Norfolk where it takes place. And she just can't help feeling that the police aren't doing a good enough job. So she has to do some investigating herself. What kind of research did you do for this one? This was really fun. (laughs) They're all fun in different ways. 
Um, I've now learned that I, I like the research the most of all. As I say, it, initially, it really worried me. It put me off. I thought, oh, it's just going to be too hot, but now I love it. So my first research was to go there, um, to go there in winter at the right time. So I'd, I'd know what the what the weather was like and what the plants were like and what the birds were like in the winter and all of that kind of thing. And there are a lot of birds on the Norfolk coast. So that was fascinating. It was gorgeous. And then go back in the summer when you can actually go around Balmoral and then and the people who show you around have so many stories. So it was really lovely kind of putting those stories into the book. So that was the most the, the main part of my research. And there's also a lot about looking after the countryside because that became a big theme. So I did a lot of research into rewilding, which is a really big thing here about how to look after the land and, and whether just to let nature take over in places. I don't know if, you, if you've got it to the same extent in the state. I think it depends on where you are. It's becoming a more prevalent topic. And I think that's one of the things that really appealed to me about your book. I am a huge national park person. We travel a lot to these outdoor areas and the importance of leaving them and returning nature to where it belongs and the animals that belong, you know, where they were originally, the wolves to Yellowstone, those different things. So I loved that aspect of your book. Well, it was really fun to research. And for research, I found myself, you know, in a beautiful bell tent in the middle of a fabulous wood on the Nep estate in, in the UK, where they're bringing back storks and deer and butterflies. And they are having a conversation about wolves, which are the next obvious thing. And oh, it was just so beautiful and glorious. And, and I know the Queen would have really loved that because that was her thing. Prince Charles, now King Charles, is obviously the famous member of the royal family for caring about the environment. But the Queen and Prince Philip did just as much, but they just kept a bit more quiet about it, I think, because it was so controversial. Yes. And it's obviously controversial here, too. But I think that it is beginning to take root, and I hope it will continue to, because it's obviously very important. Yeah, absolutely. Have you read Ellie Griffith's books, the Ruth Galloway series that are set in Norfolk? I certainly have. Yeah, I'm a big Ellie fan. I know that you've had her on the show. Um, isn't she wonderful? She is. And I love that series. And it just didn't dawn on me till we were talking and you were talking about Norfolk and the birds. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even make that connection. Those are good ones to pair together in terms of different aspects of Norfolk. Absolutely. Uh, she writes about so many different aspects of the, of the county so beautifully. And writing about archaeology, she, she brings all the history in as well, which is wonderful. And a lot of people have, have written detective stories based there. It's really interesting. Um, it's, it's wild and sometimes desolate countryside or sometimes beautiful and curated, but it just seems to inspire crime writers to set murders there. Um, even Dorothy Sayers, who's my favorite uh, crime writer of all time, she set um, The Nine Tailors there, which is one of my favorite books. Okay, I'm going to have to pick that one up. I've read a couple of her books, but not that one, but I clearly need to visit Norfolk. Oh, you do? It's just amazing. Well, what surprised you the most when writing Murder Most Royal? Oh, there are always new things. Well, the book gets into the way the British aristocracy works and inheritance and just how backward it is in terms of male-only inheriting and that kind of thing. And, and it just blew my mind that in the 21st century, it could still be as backwards as it is. Um, the royal family less so. So, you know, Princess Charlotte, who I'm a big fan of, um, she is ahead of her younger brother in the succession. But if she was an aristocrat rather than a royal, she wouldn't be. Um, so yeah, I think <laughs> I think finding that out was a bit of a shock. Um, I had lots of fun finding out about the royal family traditions at Christmas. One of my little favourites was that, I don't know if this is true, but it was a very reliable source, 
which is that when everybody puts paper crowns on their head, which is a real British tradition from the crackers that we pull at Christmas, the Queen doesn't. She's the only one who didn't. Uh, like her father before her. So they're the ones who wear the crown every other day of the year. But then when it comes to Christmas, they're the only ones who don't. She's like, I get a break from the crown today. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, what about the highlight of writing the book, Sophia? We talked about what surprised you, but what was the highlight? I really had to think about Rosie's role in this book. As I say, Rosie is my sidekick. She is incredibly competent and she's brilliant at Buckingham Palace in the book before at doing things. But largely her role is to do things that the Queen can't do. But at Sandringham, the Queen can travel around. She knows people. She can do a lot. So actually, it was harder for me to find a job for Rosie this time. She certainly does help the Queen out a lot. But she also finds the time to go wild swimming. And, and obviously, I had to practice that. So um, I think that was well, my, my most fun um, research adventure was going wild swimming in a, an outdoor lake in the summer. And and realizing how joyful it is just swimming among the weeds and the grasses and the birds. And I liked that Rosie got some character development and we learned more about her individually and personally. Yeah, I try to do that with all my main characters if I can. And I am very fond of Rosie. Here, Here is this woman in her early 30s who has a lot in common with the Queen, actually. She's the eldest daughter of uh, of quite pushy parents who have great expectations for her because they, they themselves are the children of Nigerian immigrants. And she's, and she's intelligent and she's been underestimated a lot of her life. In every other way, she she's, has nothing in common with the Queen. But yes, she's adapting to royal life uh, because she's very untypical of the court. And and she's finding out what she does like about it, what she doesn't like about it. And I, I like the way that uh, she has an active sex life <laughs> at, at Sandringham, um, which I think a lot of people do when they visit. Um, and it was just quite fun get, getting Rosie to just interact with the, the rest of the royal staff and just become part of the royal household, I suppose. I agree. I really enjoyed that. Well, one of the things I love to talk about is book covers. Another thing about your website that I loved was that you showed all of the different country covers. I love your U.S. covers. They are just beautiful, I think. And your covers vary a lot. It was a ball to pour over them all and figure out which ones were from where and all of that. Do you have any favorites? And is it really fun for you to see how each country interprets the books? Oh, it's enormously fun. So book three, Murder Most Royal, is coming out in a lot of different places at the moment. And it's delightful. I mean, it's, it's um, the Netherlands is completely different from France, which is different from Germany, which is different from Italy. I think with the first book, The Winds Are Not, the Italian cover, which does have the Queen with a magnifying glass. Um, that was my favorite. But I really love the French ones because they take huge care to put a lot of detail in, um, which is tremendous for me. So I don't know how they do it, but you know there are like 20 little details from the plot on the cover, which I think is extraordinary. And it's, it's still set within a main scene. And the other thing that the French do is they put Rosie on there with the Queen. So you have this black woman with her natural hair on the cover of this traditional crime kind of book. And I'm really thrilled about that. And I I do wish more people would do that too, actually. But no, I like them all. I love my English covers, which are very, very funny. And I really love what the US um, publishers have done at William Morrow, because again, if you look closely, there are all sorts of little details in there as well. There are. And the color combinations are very well done. 
And I had not seen the American paperback for The Windsor Knot, and I loved that with the crown and all the little details in the crown. Yes. I mean, to be really truthful, the hardback didn't really work. It was blue with yellow script and and just a silhouette. And it was a little bit too tame, and it didn't really explain what the book was about. And then William Morrow were wonderful, and they said, look, I, I was very good. I didn't complain or anything, but, you know, they came to me and they said, look, we've done this different design for the paperback, and it was just wonderful. I loved it from the word go. I think it has quite a 50s feel to it somehow. Um, it's very graphic, red and black, and, and they've kept that kind of queen silhouette graphic look. Not many colours, red and green. I think it looks wonderful. Yeah, and, and as you say, the... Um, if you look in the crown, or in this case, in the Christmas tree, then you'll see all sorts of clues as to what the story's about. Yes. And I always enjoy that, especially once you finish a book, going back and pouring over the cover and matching things up. Yeah, absolutely. I'm in conversation with my, my UK editor at the moment about the cover for the next book, because it doesn't, it's much more about a feel um, as opposed to the plot exactly. So he has a very different uh, understanding of, of what the cover should do. Um, but it's been hugely successful. So I'm not going to argue with him. He definitely knows what he's doing. But that's got to be difficult because it's book four. So you want to keep it for marketing purposes. You want them all to look similar. So mm -hmm. you don't want to go too far off what you've been doing. But on the other hand, if it's set farther in the past, I'm sure it's supposed to have a different look. Yeah. Oh, well, it's interesting. <laughs> You'll, I'll be adding it as soon as the cover is official. I'll be adding it to the website and you can see what you think. Okay, good. Well, the other thing that's always interesting to see is when titles vary. And I saw that your second book had a different title in the UK than it did in the US. Why was that? The reason was that my UK editor fell in love with one of my title suggestions, which was A Three Dog Problem, which was taken from the fact that when Sherlock Holmes has a really difficult case to solve, he calls it a three-pipe problem because he has to sit down and smoke three pipes to solve it. And I thought, wouldn't it be funny if the Queen had to take three corgis for a walk in Buckingham Palace Gardens to solve her problem, which is exactly what she does. Didn't think my editor would go for it, but he loved it. And so that was great. But my US editor said, nobody is going to understand what that's referring to. And so he wanted something different. And, and that was that. I, it, so in the US, the title is All the Queen's Men, which I like very much as a title as well. I'm really sad that the titles are different because it really confuses my readers. And I have a newsletter and I, I'm in contact a lot with my readers. And I know that they, many, more than one has, has bought the book twice because they thought it was two different books. So that's annoying. But I think each title in itself is good. But I'm interested, Cindy, you read massively. Which one do you prefer? Well, that's so interesting. I, I was just sitting here thinking as you were explaining it, because one, I do think it is very confusing when there are different titles in the US and the UK. And I think it's even more confusing when it's part of a series, mm -hmm. because I think you go to look up books, the covers look similar, but then all of a sudden, you know, in the US, you've got one title, in the UK, you've got another. So that is a shame they didn't try to match it up. Second, I disagree. I think the three dog problem is adorable. Like, I think that is such a clever reference. And I am ashamed that your editor here didn't think that the US could keep <laughs> up with that. I'm offended on my behalf. But then also, I really like both. So I'm, I mean, I, I think I like the cleverness of the three dog problem. Like, that's so much fun. I have dogs. So walking the three dogs to work out the problem, like I love that. But I also love all the Queen's men. 
So I'm not sure I have a preference, but I do think it's a shame they didn't line them up because I know it just confuses the heck out of people, especially now that sometimes in other cases, there are audible originals and there are many short stories and there are novellas. And, you know, there's just all these different things that get published and it's hard enough to get everything lined up. So then to have two different titles thrown in is just much more confusion. Yeah, I know. It was a bit heartbreaking. I mean, like you, I do not underestimate the intelligence of my American readers. Um, But when I ask, often they do prefer All the Queen's Men as a title. Um, Anyway, it is what it is. I'll I'll have to look at it. There we go. Yes. And also to not uh, downplay our intelligence here, people can look it up and figure out that they can't, you know, read the summaries of the two books and realize, oh, these are the same books. So, I mean, we can certainly figure that out on our own too. (laughs) But it's a shame that they didn't do that. But, you know, in the scheme of things, it's no big deal. And I do like all the Queen's Men as well. I I like both of those. So I was just kind of curious. I'm always fascinated by that. And I do think it tends to cause confusion. But again, not a big deal. It's interesting. You think, wouldn't you, that we live in a globalized world where everything is the same all over, but it really isn't. And, you know, I was always fascinated to hear that Coke tastes slightly different depending on which country you go to. The recipe is not the same. And I imagine probably McDonald's burgers are different. Well, you know, there's, there's the great kind of Tarantino scene about that. And, and yeah, and, and books are not identical from country to country still now. It, yeah, it's really interesting. It is really interesting. And it's fun to learn the behind the scenes stuff as to how it played out and why. Yeah, I'm probably talking out of turn here. Yeah, not at all. No. I think people love hearing why things happened and when. So before we wrap up, Sophia, what have you read recently that you really liked? I have a couple of suggestions for you. And one relates back to Sherlock Holmes. And it's by the wonderful Bonnie McBird. Uh, It's called Art in the Blood. And it's the first of her Sherlock Holmes mysteries. So she she writes books set within the time period of the canon, but other stories that Watson is telling about Holmes. Um, and they're illustrated by Frank Cho, who is an absolutely brilliant illustrator and, and really adds atmosphere to the books. And I love Bonnie's style. And I'm fascinated that Bonnie actually wrote Tron, the film Tron. So <laughs> she goes from one to the other. And she's American, but she now lives in London, almost overlooking the Baker Street location where, where Holmes lived. So she's a, she's a real expert and she's got a wonderful style. So Art in the Blood is the first in the series, and I really recommend that one. And my second recommendation is Slow Horses by Mick Heron um, and his latest book in the series, The Secret Hours, that has just come out. It's about a very hapless UK spies and it's been made into a really fantastic TV series with Gary Oldman and Kristen Scott Thomas, which I highly recommend if it's available. But the books are wonderful too. They're funny and people say that they are as accurate about our security services as as anything you could hope for. Um, And they're very exciting adventure plots too and some really wry political commentary, which, which I love. So I recommend the series, but The Secret Hours, which is the latest one, is a standalone that's largely based before the Slow Horses book chronology starts. So you can read it on its own if you don't want to sort of launch yourself straight into the series. I haven't read it yet, but it's very high on my list because all the people who are reviewing it at the moment are saying that it's one of his best. I've watched the TV series here. And when I worked at Murder by the Book, which is a crime fiction bookstore here in Houston, I sold those books all the time. People just rave about him. He has a wonderful story. 
which is that he wrote the books and they didn't really do very well. And the series was just kind of quietly dying. And then I think somebody in America, it was, read them and discovered them and just thought they were amazing. And he got a new publisher and they relaunched him. And so he got this kind of second chance. And it's interesting, isn't it, that it might never have happened and people might not have realized how good they are. But now they're out there. There's just a general consensus that they're really fabulous, which they are. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the Bonnie McBird series because I love those books. I've read the first couple. How many are there now? Um, Four or five. There's a Christmas one, which is quite recent. And I think the fifth is coming out soon. Okay, that's great because there was a window of time when they weren't coming out. And when I was at the bookstore, I sold the first couple all the time. In fact, maybe I've read the first three. I've been doing these posts on Instagram where I'm highlighting various mystery series. And that was one of the ones I wanted to highlight. And I need to go find my copies of the books and kind of refresh myself. But I wasn't sure whether she was still putting them out. It doesn't matter. I've been highlighting some that are done and some that are still being put out. But that was one of the ones that I was thinking about going back and refreshing myself on because it's been so much fun and people are really enjoying it. Just seeing these various different mystery series because I've read series forever, like since I was in college and because I worked at Murder by the Book, I'd sold so many of them. So it's been really fun to go back and revisit some of them and talk about them. And that was one of the ones that was high on my list to go back and look at. Oh, I must catch up on that. That sounds completely wonderful. I really got into series fiction myself because that's what my mother read. And our bookshelves at home were just full of all these amazing series. So um, I'm really into that too. Yeah, it's really nice because when you finish one, then you've got the next one and you're ready to go. That's why, you know, Ellie Griffiths and some of the others we've been talking about are just ones that I've always followed. And you know who else writes a really great Sherlock Holmes series? There were only three. Was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Wow, okay. Yes, the basketball player here in the U.S. And he wrote it with Anna Winterhouse, I think was her name. And they wrote him together. But he is a huge Sherlock Holmes fan. And he is all this memorabilia. And he's attended all these conferences. And they're really interesting. It's I, I always think those Sherlock Holmes interpretations, I guess is what you'd call them, are fascinating. Oh, that's so cool that he did that. Yeah, they are. And, and I think people have their favorites, don't they? Because everybody does it in a slightly different way. But yeah, Bonnie is my favorite, definitely. Yes. And I love hers. They're really well done. And I love learning that she wrote Tron and that she lives right near Sherlock Holmes's fictional address. Well, Sophia, thank you so much for joining me today. I have really enjoyed reading your series and chatting with you. This has been delightful and I appreciate your time. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts From a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. And for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.